We read here, John the Baptist replied to the religious interrogators that were sent from Jerusalem. After he replied to them the next day, we read that he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we consider this verse, uh, I want you to think this morning about your favorite novel or a movie and think back to the first time you read it or uh, you watched it. And if you recall, there was uh, some excitement in not knowing what was going to happen, right? There was this feeling of anticipation, of expectation. And now when you go back and you reread the same novel or watch the movie, it's different. It's different because you know uh, what's going to happen. Right? You know all the plot twists, the surprises. You still enjoy it, but you enjoy it in a different way. It's not necessarily as exciting as that very first time. Well, as we uh, read about what John the Baptist declared here about Jesus, we need to remember that John was part of the Old Covenant people of God who were living in a time of anticipation. They were anticipating the Messiah's arrival. See, you, you and I, we have uh, read the whole Bible. Uh, we know the story of redemption. We know the promise side, which we find in the Old Testament. And we also know the fulfillment side, which we find in the New Testament. We know all the plot twists. We know the surprises. But John the Baptist did not know as much as you and I do. You know, that's uh, easy for us to forget because um, uh, it's easy for us to forget because it's easy to overlook that John was part of the Old Covenant. He was an Old Covenant prophet who was ministering in the New Testament. Uh, you know, when we read books like Isaiah and Ezekiel, or perhaps one of the minor prophets that we're studying in adult Sunday school, it's easier to see that, yeah, these were part of the Old Covenant because they're in the Old Testament. But John the Baptist? John the Baptist is in uh, the New Testament. He was a contemporary of Jesus's. And yet we need to remember that he was still under the Old Covenant. He was still, during his lifetime, during his ministry, he was still discovering parts of the story of redemption, the story that you and I so often take for granted, the story that you and I know so well because we've read the New Testament and we know how it ends. As we read this morning from Revelation chapter 5, we know who the Lamb is and how he is going to be glorified, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in that last day when we all gather around the throne and praising him. And so when John the Baptist uh, publicly declared here in our uh, passage this morning that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the reason that John was able to make this confession is because uh, God had revealed to him this mystery this mystery of who the Messiah was going to be. It was a mystery that had been hidden for ages, and now it was revealed to John. John understood at that moment that Jesus of Nazareth was 
the one sent by God to accomplish our salvation. And so as we uh, think about John the Baptist and his declaration here in verse 29, I believe it will be helpful for us to ask uh, three questions to help us understand what had been revealed to John by God the Holy Spirit. The first question I want us to ask is, uh, why did John refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God? Why that specific title? And, you know, in answering this question, we need to remember that, again, John the Baptist's Bible was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Lamb is a small word, but it has a lot of meaning. So let's work through the Old Testament to see what John understood about Jesus as the Lamb. And, you know, we won't be able to cover every detail, but I do want us to have a general understanding of this theme. We read in the opening two chapters, we begin with Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Bible. We read there about God's work of creation, how God made everything very good, and how when he created Adam and Eve, they were sinless. They were holy and happy. But we know that Adam and Eve sinned against God by uh, disobeying his commandment, commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree was a test of their obedience, and they failed. They failed because they were led astray and enticed by the serpent. But God did not destroy Adam and Eve for their their disobedience. Instead, we read in Scripture that he pronounced to the serpent, the instrument of Satan, uh, by extension, therefore, to Satan himself, that he would send a man. This is the pronouncement. God will send a man, someone from the human race, to destroy the serpent and to destroy the serpent's reign of evil. It's the promise that we find in Genesis 3.15. And then very soon after this, we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. We see that right after Adam and Eve sinned, curse was pronounced upon all of creation. God then immediately made these skins, these cl- this clothing for Adam and Eve out of an animal, and he covered Adam and Eve in these skins. Now, this is what the animal skin represented. Ultimately, it represented a bloody sacrifice for sin that God had provided for them. We know, don't we, that Adam and Eve had tried to make their own covering with uh, fig leaves, but their sin and their shame could not be dealt with by their own efforts. The solution for sin, we, we know from Genesis, had to come from God himself. And so, from the beginning, see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God taught his people about the idea of sacrifice for sin taught his people the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no way of covering our sin. And then later, in in Genesis chapter 22, we read uh, the first 
direct reference to a sacrificial lamb. Many of you might know this chapter very well, the scene where Abraham and Isaac were ascending the mountain to worship the Lord. And Isaac looked around and said, Dad, I see the fire and I see the wood that we will need to set up the altar in order to worship God, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac, at that point, being fully aware of how they were to worship God and how they were to offer sacrifices to God for a forgiveness of sins. And what did Abraham reply to his son? He said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. The clearest image, though, of a bloody sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament, though, is not necessarily the lamb found in Genesis 22 that Abraham spoke of, but the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. We read in this chapter about how God provided a way of escape for Israel from the judgment that he was going to bring upon Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, there it tells us that the lambs were brought into the Israelite homes to be cared for. They needed to be spotless lambs. They could not have any defects because they would be offered to a holy God. And these lambs were then slaughtered and their blood smeared on the tops and the sides of the door frames as a sign for the people of God. God saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. And then later, when uh, God gave Israel his laws about worship, he commanded that lambs be sacrificed daily to make atonement for sin. Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 through 39. We read, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. You might be asking yourself this morning, as, as you think about this biblical theology, this, this way that God was teaching his people something very important about uh, sin and about sacrifice, why did God command so much blood to be shed, so much death. Why the lamb? Well, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews explains, in these sacrifices, these sacrifices that were made daily, there is a reminder of sins. See, God was teaching his people about the sinfulness of sin through these sacrifices. He was ingraining into their hearts that sin brings death. And he was also ingraining into their hearts that the way of dealing with that sin is through sacrifice. See, this repetition was meant to teach Israel that blood needed to be shed because sin is serious, sin brings death. And through the repetition... Daily, Israel was also taught that the blood of these animals 
was not effective in taking away their sins. The very repetition of these sacrifices proved their ineffectiveness. The writer of Hebrews explains it in chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, why uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if it's impossible for animal sacrifices to take away sins, then how are sins to be removed? Well, if we look back into the Old Testament, and again, this progressive revelation of what God was teaching his people, God himself promised to remove the sins of his people by sending a Savior to suffer and to die in our place. We read this prophecy in Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 7, which we read during our first reading. The prophet Isaiah saying, There all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We see this very important passage in Isaiah, and we see here that the lamb is now personified. The one that all of these sacrifices year after year were pointing to, here in Isaiah, it is identified that he is a man. He is a person, the one that God promised who would come to take away the sins of his people. God here revealed through Isaiah that this person would be sent by God. Isaiah writes that he would be led like a lamb, like all those old covenant sacrifices to his death. But we read that his death would be different. See, his death will fully and finally take away sin. Isaiah is saying there, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, what God revealed through Isaiah is that this person would make a one-time, a once-and-for-all sacrifice for sin. And the question over the centuries was, who was this person? And this is what John, or what God revealed to John on that amazing day. That amazing day when John was at the Jordan River and he looked up and he saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, at that moment, it was revealed to him that God had sent Jesus. This is the one whom God had sent to deal once for all with our greatest problem, which is sin. This is what the world needs Every person we know is born in sin, and so every person needs the Lamb. 
So we read that he was sent for the very purpose of saving us from our sins. In fact, this is, if you recall, what the angel spoke to Joseph. When uh, God sent the angel revealed to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, speaking about the one who was to be born to Mary. And Why this name? Because he will save his people from their sins, said the angel. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. Jesus means God saves. And so when God sent Jesus, he sent him for the very purpose of saving us from our sins. He is the Lamb of God. Dear Carson, it's a quote that I've noted before in, in, in explaining why God sent Jesus to die for our sins. He explains, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had noted that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent a savior. He sent the lamb to take away our sin. The next question then is, how, how did Jesus take away sin? If He's the lamb that was prophesied to come, and he came and take, took away our sin. How did he do that? Well, the word here in John chapter 1, verse 29, the word for take away means just that. It means that he removed our sins from us. He removed the guilt and the punishment of our sins by expiating them, by carrying them off. You recall those two goats in Leviticus chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. One of the goats was slaughtered for the sins of the people, but one was kept alive. And it was brought before the high priest, and the high priest laid his hands on the goat, and he confessed over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head, and then he sent the goat away into the wilderness. See, that scapegoat took on the sins of the Israelites and symbolically removed them. That scapegoat, both the one that was sent into the wilderness and the one that bled and died in atoning the sins of the people, all of that foreshadowed Christ. So that Christ atoned for our sins by bearing the curse for them on the cross. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 3 how this took place. It took place because God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' blood propitiated or satisfied God's wrath for our sin. That 
uh, Christ's death on the cross was a propitiating sacrifice. That means it's, it was a substitutionary sacrifice that satisfied the just wrath of God for all of those who believe. And this is why, loved ones, the Apostle Paul says that in the cross, when we think about what Jesus accomplished there, it says in the cross, we see a display of both God's justice and of God's love. We see a display of God's justice because on the cross, Christ bears the penalty for our sins, the penalty that God's holy law demands. The cross is also a public demonstration of God's love, isn't it? Because on the cross, Jesus died in our place. He died in the place of sinners. So sin is punished, but it's also punished by a subst- uh, punished and placed upon a substitute. Kent Hughes writes, this is why Christianity is a bloody religion. The blood of Christ cleanses us of all sin. This reality must be primary in our witness and in our thinking. Yes, uh, Christ came to give abundant life. Yes, uh, Christ worked miracles. But these are benefits of the gospel, uh, not the gospel itself. The gospel centers upon Christ as the sin bearer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we think about what Christ accomplished as he hung on the cross, many theologians refer to that as his uh, passive obedience. That in his love for us, he endured the cross and the shame and the punishment that was involved in it. That he uh, willingly laid down his life for us in obedience to God by dying the death that we should have died and paying the penalty that we all owed to God. That on the cross, our sins were taken from us, subtracted from us, and placed upon him. They were taken from our accounts and credited to Christ. So what we talk about when we refer to the doctrine of justification, this great exchange, our sins taken and placed upon Christ. The wonderful thing about the gospel, loved ones, is it's not just about subtraction, our sins being taken from us and credited to Christ. But there's also addition involved when we talk about the good news of the gospel. And the addition involves Christ's righteousness being credited to us. That the life that he lived in obedience to God and pleasing God is credited to our account as if we ourselves had lived a perfect life as Jesus did when he was on the earth. Michael Horton is a professor. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Escondido. He tells the story of going to Europe during his junior year in college. And because of the fun that he was having, he writes that he lost track of his expenses and he racked up a lot of debts. And so he called his parents and asked for help. And what did they do? They... He, he writes, they transferred money from their account to cover his outstanding bills, and then they included an additional sum for him to use for the remainder of his trip. And, and Horton asks the question, uh, was this money 
strictly speaking, my money. No, it belonged to my parents. Nevertheless, because they had transferred it to my account, it was now my money. My account was now filled with money I had not earned, but was mine to use nonetheless. This is an excellent illustration of justification. Through Christ's passive obedience, our debt has been paid. And our sin and our guilt was subtracted and placed upon him. But through his active obedience, through his perfect life of obedience to God, his righteousness is added to us so that we, loved ones, are at this very moment declared righteous. Not only are we not guilty, but the Bible says that we are now positively righteous in God's sight. We receive an alien righteousness that is not our own. The key text for this passage is uh, sec- uh, for this idea is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 where the apostle Paul says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see loved ones how our Justification is a full and rich entire act of God's free grace alone. He's taken away our guilt. He has given us Christ and all of his benefits so that now when we stand before God, we stand in Christ, righteous, holy, loved, and accepted. And it is until we grasp this with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that at this very moment we are in Christ. It isn't until we grasp this truth that we will truly have peace in this life. Martin Luther, the reformer, as he was reflecting upon his own struggle with assurance and you know, before he discovered the doctrines of grace, he struggled greatly with assurance and with feelings of condemnation and, and not meeting up to what God demanded of him. Luther, reflecting upon this peace that is found when one rests in Christ alone, he said, you will never find true peace until you find it and keep it in this, that Christ takes all your sins upon himself and places all his righteousness upon you. This is the glorious transaction. The glorious transaction that when we grasp it, gives us a peace, loved ones, that is beyond all understanding. I want to conclude with the third question. How then can we be sure that Christ has taken away my sin? He's taken away your sin in particular. My sin in particular. John the Baptist Again, in verse 29, in his declaration, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, you know, some might point to this verse as teaching that Jesus' death covers every person, that he died for every single person. But this is actually not what John is referring to. By um, using the word world, What John is doing is he is making a contrast with Jewish exclusivism, saying that the Messiah came not only to 
save Israel, but to save people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is saying that Jesus saves not merely the Jews, as was expected in his day, but also Gentiles, everyone in the world who believes on him. This is what the Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 10, that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone, whatever tribe, tongue, or nation you affiliate with, there is no distinction to be found in Christ. So how can you and I, therefore, loved ones, have the assurance that our sin in particular has been taken away? The Heidelberg Catechism gives us a fantastic answer. How are you righteous before God is the question. The answer, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Heidelberg Catechism wonderfully instructs us there. How can I know that he died for me? Not by looking inward, not by looking at my own conscience, because my conscience accuses me, but by looking to Christ, looking to him, focusing upon him and trusting that what he accomplished on the cross is for me. The Apostle Paul says, and conclude with this in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for sending Christ to die for our sins. We thank you that by faith we are now found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but his own perfect righteousness credited to us. And we thank you, Father, for the way you are working in our lives by your Spirit, conforming us daily to the image of your Son by causing us to die daily to sin and to live instead for your glory. Father, when our flesh condemns us and when uh, Satan assaults us, cause us to find refuge in the sure knowledge that Christ, the Lamb of God, has taken away our sin and he frees us from the accursed load that uh, sin brings with guilt. 
For we ask this in uh, Jesus' name. Amen.